KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, UCLA has gotten a multi-million dollar grant to establish an archive of the age of mass incarceration, starting with 177 boxes of LAPD records from the 70s through the 2000s. We'll speak with Kelly Little Hernandez and Sharon Speed about the project. Also, later in the show, our TV critic Ella Taylor will review Judas and the Black Messiah. That's the new drama about the Chicago police assassination of Black Panther Fred Hampton in 1969. We'll also talk about Nomadland, the wonderful film starring Frances McDormand as a working class woman who's lost her husband, her job, and her house, and is living and working out of her van. It opens Friday on Hulu. But first, some of our friends are still preoccupied with Trump and how to punish him for his crimes. But really, it's time to turn our attention and energy to the challenges and opportunities that face Joe Biden, things that could really help real people and help the Democrats expand their representation in Congress. And so we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor at large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him tonight, as usual, at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, before we can talk about Biden's economic recovery plan, Congress needs to pass his pandemic relief plan. That's the one with the $1,400 stimulus checks, as well as hundreds of billions for schools, city and state government, coronavirus testing vaccine manufacture and distribution. And as we have said before, it includes a $15 minimum wage. Uh, and that part has run into trouble with some Democrats. Uh, Kristen Sinema, the first term Democratic Senator from Arizona said at the end of last week that she opposes including the $15 in the pandemic relief bill. She says it's not pandemic relief. And that means it would have to go to a standalone bill once it got to the Senate, where it would be subject to a Republican filibuster. And even though the Democrats could abolish the filibuster, Kristen Sinema says she's against that. Uh, and so is Joe Manchin, as we've remarked before. Uh, and Joe Manchin is against the $15 in any case. So, so where do we stand with $15 at this hour? Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, the mystery of Kristen Cinema is uh, she represents a state that is increasingly democratic, and she represents a state that has some um, very low-paid workers. Uh, and if you uh, look at the demographics of and the exit polling, uh, a disproportionate share of those low-paid workers, when they voted, voted for her. Uh, certainly, uh, the reason she uh, was elected uh, in a special election uh, was that uh, she got a high percentage of Latino votes and a high percentage of Native American votes. And that's also why Joe Biden carried Arizona uh, and why Mark Kelly, her fellow senator, carried Arizona. So, you know, her, her, her base, her electorate there could really use that 15 bucks. And I would assume that they are beating drums in her direction and banging pots and whatever you do to get her attention. 
So we shall see where that goes. Uh, Joe Manchin, we've already discussed. It can't be because West Virginia is immune to poverty. It's been a center of American poverty for time immemorial. So, you know, there's some real questions about, about the two of them, uh, but we'll have to see how firm their opposition to the filibuster is when uh, a range of legislation comes before the Senate, beginning with the $15 minimum wage, which is pretty clear the House, when it passes the bill, which it's likely to do either late this week or sometime next week, uh, the House will include that in the bill that they send to the Senate. And another part of the pandemic relief bill that's very important is federal aid to state and local governments. Uh, Republicans oppose this. They call it a blue state bailout. Is it a blue state bailout? I actually think if you look at this, it's more of a red state bailout. Uh, <laughs> the Washington Post on Tuesday morning, the lead story in its print edition was about how states have laid off about 5% of their, uh, of their workers uh, at a time when, because of the pandemic, uh, the, the states have to deliver an extraordinary level of services. Uh, the, the Post also noted, you know, that this is chiefly because uh, revenues have declined in a number of states, and it's, it's easy to understand why. Hawaii, for instance, is dependent on tourism, and so all the revenue that we get from that has been curtailed. States that uh, depend uh, disproportionately on oil and gas production revenues, like North Dakota and Alaska, have suffered uh, revenue decreases because they, uh, you know, people are driving less. Uh, but then when you looked at the Post's map of how the 50 states have been affected uh, by the pandemic in terms of lost revenue, some things jump out. The first thing that jumped out to me was that California has seen absolutely no diminution in its revenue. And that's because it has one feature of its tax system that conservatives always complain about that it's the most progressive tax system of the 50 states. And lo and behold, in this time of pandemic, what that has meant is that because the rich are getting richer, uh, they're paying their taxes at the usual clip and the state is not in fiscal crisis. You know, and, it, and it's had a minor effect on other states with highly progressive taxes like New York and, uh, and Pennsylvania and Illinois, uh, not Illinois, New York and Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. Uh, it's had a significant effect on. So then let's look at the states that don't have an income tax at all. They've suffered really significant uh, revenue shortfalls. The two mega conservative states, both Texas and Florida, have seen a 10% decline in state revenues. And then when it comes to states that have had to lay off workers, uh, the one that's way in the lead is live free or die New Hampshire. <laughs> Which, which has no income tax and has laid off 26% oh. of, its, uh, of its public workers, which is nine percentage points higher than the number two ranking state. So it's more like live free and die, not or, <laughs> uh, in, uh, in, in, in states where they just don't want to tax the rich and so they don't. I don't understand why the Republicans don't want to bring home the bacon to their own states. This, this is, doesn't make sense to me. Can you help? Well, this is the same Republican Congress that uh, you know, acquitted Donald Trump. I mean, they're living 
not in what uh, one Republican once dismissively termed a reality-based community. Uh, and, but the fact is, though, that Republican governors and Republican mayors are very definitely asking them to vote for the $1.9 trillion Biden relief package as delivered, as Biden has sent it up to Capitol Hill, because it includes aid, which they know goes to red cities and red states. Well, now I'd like to switch to the big picture of America's economy after the pandemic. Biden's next program will be to revive uh, the, uh, especially American manufacturing. And this is a huge challenge. It's something, of course, Trump ran on four years ago. Uh, Biden's Economic Recovery Act will be introduced after the pandemic relief bill passes. Um, and this one features cracking down on outsourcing, investing billions in research and development, developing the next generation of green technology. Then he wants to connect those dots to a massive jobs and infrastructure program. His goal is 5 million new jobs in manufacturing. And he started at the end of January with an executive order requiring the federal government to buy more goods produced in the United States. The federal government spends something like $600 billion annually buying stuff on contracts. But of course, that is has been open for decades. We've talked about that here to foreign companies to bid on. And so a lot of that goes to the cheaper prices that foreign businesses can uh, can offer their goods for is um is requiring the federal government to buy american a good place to start on reviving american manufacturing oh you you're damn right it's a good place to start uh the, the federal government is the largest purchaser purchaser uh the federal government is the largest purchaser of uh, manufactured goods. I mean, the Pentagon alone, uh, probably uh, within the federal government, is the largest buyer of uh, of goods. And as, as I think I've noted in a previous broadcast, a lot of the things that the military brags about, like night vision, we own the night, is indeed a technology developed here, but then manufactured in East Asia. So we kind of rent the night more than, than we own it. Uh, and, and, and so there are national concer security concerns, not only at the Pentagon, but in terms of uh, getting the, the masks we need to wear while the pandemic rages, that comes from China. Uh, a lot of the basic materials of medications that Americans take come from China. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's just stupefying the degree to which corporations under the doctrine of shareholder value was all that matters and at the prodding of Wall Street, essentially decimated uh, the manufacturing belt. The, you know, the number of manufacturing jobs that have vanished since, let's say, the turn of the century uh, probably exceeds by a relatively small margin that 5 million that Biden wants to bring back. And if you want to take it back to the 1980s when this really started, it's considerably larger than that. Uh, it started in the 1980s, not only because of the relative ease of uh, global communication and transportation, but because with the rise of Wall Street, which was a definite uh, intended effect of the Reagan presidency, the corporations came under pressure uh, to go find the cheapest labor they could, and they did.
One of my favorite themes of yours over the last several years has been what you learned about how the New Deal was able to quickly create public service construction jobs at a pace which is unimaginable today. Today, jobs are and work tasks are much more high tech and require more planning in their own infrastructure. Is, is 5 million new jobs in manufacturing realistic? It certainly was something that could be done in the 30s. Can it be done today in a couple of years? Well, you know, one of the one of the issues there is that if you go into a modern factory, there are fewer workers on what used to be called the shop floor. Uh, and that's because machines do do a lot of what workers once did. If you go into a steel mill, and I've, I've done that, uh, you'll find that the, there are actually very few workers on the shop floor. And a lot of them are on sort of stations built on catwalks on the walls where they're turning dials, controlling uh, the composition of the ingot as it flows down, that sort of thing. Uh, so the there are a lot of jobs and they can expand with the demand for more product that uh, a Green New Deal will certainly entail, uh, windmills and all sorts of things. But manufacturing has become, as the phrase has it, more capital intensive. So is construction. Um, you know, I mean, the, the great job creation programs of the WPA, say, uh, during the New Deal, which were put together by a genius at mobilization named Harry Hopkins, uh, a lot of those folks were just using picks and shovels. You know, we don't use picks and shovels anymore. It didn't take any extensive training on how to use a pick and shovel, uh, on how to use a uh, sophisticated forklift or crane. You better know what you're doing, and that takes some time. Of course, the politicos among us are already working on the 2022 midterms. We know the party in power usually loses ground in the midterms, and the pundits say that while the Democrats may be able to hold on to and maybe even expand their position in the Senate, they are likely to lose their majority in the House. So Biden needs to work fast to have significant accomplishments that could reverse the historic pattern of first midterms for new presidents. By summer of 2022, he's going to need to have made significant progress on his uh, economic recovery plans. Do you, what will it take to do that? It'll take passing uh, the 1.9 trillion package that he's already sent to the Hill and passing that uh, further infrastructure investment uh, manufacturing bill uh, as soon as possible after that. Those I think are the two main components, um, you know, it, it, but it's gonna take a while to bring this economy back. So uh, I think Biden is right in emphasizing speed, which is to say passing his, his package through uh, budget reconciliation uh, which certainly speeds it up. Uh, it, it, the speed is necessary for health reasons, for economic reasons, and for political reasons. Isn't it amazing that after a lifetime of Democrats who believed in, you know, not spending too much money, in making deals with Republicans, in limiting our ambitions, that Joe Biden the essential insider for his entire life has turned out to be 
more Rooseveltian than Clintonian? Uh, yes, and th there are several factors there. Uh, one is the cumulative effect of the rise of the left in the Democratic Party, the growth of the left, for which we have uh, basically Bernie Sanders to thank, along with, uh, in other ways, Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Another factor is the drift of the Republicans into a place where they were not previously, where they're not going to make any deals. And that's pretty clear. And so that, uh, you know, essentially put those two things together and waiting for the Republicans to come along is, is a Samuel Beckett-like waiting for Godot type situation. Uh, I think during the primaries, Andrew Yang said of Joe Biden uh, when he was supporting him, not when he was running against him, that when Joe Biden says something that's radical, it sounds kind of normal because it's Joe Biden saying it. And I think that's true. And I think that's an added advantage that Joe Biden's career inadvertently now brings this level of credibility to his uh, somewhat more left than anyone expected policies. We have just a couple minutes left here. And I understand you've been thinking about a commission to investigate the events of January 6th. What are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are Nancy Pelosi has proposed one such, and Lindsey Graham has said he wants a commission too. And what I take from both of those is that there are some very different ideas out there as to what this commission uh, could be and should be. Uh, I, I think the notion of a commission with bipartisan credibility is a lot more difficult to realize than it was uh, at the time that the 9-11 Commission was set up when both parties agreed we need to change some policies uh, and uh, they wanted to look into uh, what negligence there was. And they did. If you'll recall, I remember Condoleezza Rice having to defend the fact that the George W. Bush administration had ignored an intelligence report that said Al-Qaeda likely to attack soon. Uh, so th this, this, this is going to be harder uh, to, put in, uh, to put into play. Uh, will the Republicans agree to allow it to have subpoena power? Will House Republicans vote for a measure that would allow the commission to subpoena Kevin McCarthy? the House Republican leader about his phone call with Donald Trump that Jamie Herrera Butler uh, uh, issued a statement about, uh, you know, uh, will enough Republicans in the Senate uh, support it so that it isn't filibustered to death? So there are all kinds of questions surrounding this. I think the commission could be very valuable if it uh, has a majority that's, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, cares about fact. And if it, it is allowed to uh, really dig with uh, in documents and subpoena witnesses, but we don't know what it's going to take to get it through Congress. Caring about facts you've already suggested is not something that the Republican Party has demonstrated much of in the last several years. No. And it's important to remember that uh, in the trial that ended over last Saturday, that the four reasons Trump's lawyers gave to the Republican senators uh, that they could acquit, uh, you know, included that you can't, uh, under process, you can't uh, convict a former official, 
and that the indictment violated Senate Rule 23, which said that you uh, have to list the charges separately rather than putting them all into one uh, big charge, which is sort of like saying we object to this because you connect the charges by semicolons instead of periods. <laughs> the bottom line was they didn't really stress that you can acquit him because you think he's innocent on, on the basis of the facts. They left that one out. And Mitch McConnell, <laughs> in his own devious way, uh, said, in essence, uh, Trump is guilty as hell on, on the facts, but I, I found this nice little uh, excuse that he's a former official, so we can't do it uh, uh, as the basis for my voting to acquit, which is Mitch McConnell's way of trying to appease the party's traditional financial donors on the one hand and its delusional Trumpians on the other. Talking about Trump, even though we didn't set out to talk about Trump, <laughs> Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thanks, Harold. Always good to have you on the show. And always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Los Angeles has the largest jail system in the most heavily incarcerated nation in the world. And after a summer of unprecedented street protests, historians at UCLA have won a $3.6 million grant to create an archive of the history of mass incarceration in Los Angeles, starting with 177 boxes of the records of the LAPD. The project for an archive of the age of mass incarceration involves all four of UCLA's ethnic studies centers and is headed by Kelly Little Hernandez. She's professor of history, African-American studies and urban planning at UCLA. She is director of UCLA's Ralph Bunch Center for African-American Studies. She's the author of the indispensable book, City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles. And she's also the winner of a MacArthur Genius Grant. We talked here last July at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests. Kelly Little Hernandez, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's good to be in conversation. And we're also joined by Shannon Speed. She's a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation and director of the UCLA American Indian Studies Center, one of the partners in the new archive. Her books include Rights in Rebellion, Human Rights and Indigenous Struggle in Chiapas. Shannon Speed, welcome. Great to be here, John, thanks. Well, Kelly, let's start with the police archive. All police departments, including the LAPD, have refused for decades to make their records available to the public, especially for what they call misconduct and the use of deadly force. What exactly did you get from the LAPD and how did you get it? I was involved in a lawsuit that was run by the ACLU of Southern California, in which they were going after records um, from the LAPD, namely records that the public is entitled to see through the California Public Records Act. And in a settlement um, with the LAPD, we were able to win 177 boxes of LAPD's historical records that were, it's my understanding, on, on path to be destroyed, but now we've save them or retain them or archive them. Now what's in those boxes? We're still working through them, 
but we have found mostly records from the 1980s and the 1990s to the early 2000s. We have use of force files, officer-involved shooting files, records relating to operations, especially around the war on drugs, operations relating to the intersection of immigration enforcement and day-to-day policing. So it's an incredibly rich set of 177 boxes of material that we're just beginning to work through right now, but we will digitize them and make them publicly available as well. Wow. Shannon, the police records are only one part of the project. There's also what you could call the other side of the story, the communities impacted by the police. Your project will also be collecting their voices and materials. Tell us about that. That's right, John. Um, I'm an anthropologist, not a historian, and um, anthropologists are concerned with with the everyday lived experience of these kinds of social processes. And certainly here, what we really want to get at with the oral histories and the ephemera are is precisely that, people's lived experience of mass incarceration. What does this look like in our communities and and for real people on the ground? And what kinds of materials are you gonna be collecting? So we'll be collecting 60 oral histories um, interviews. So um, those will be mostly focused on American Indian and um, Asian American Pacific Islander because of the Million Dollar Hood project already had a lot of oral histories involved. So they're already bringing that from from the Bunch Center and uh, the Chicano Studies Research Center also has an archive of oral histories that they'll be adding. And, you know, the ephemera, it remains to be seen what those materials will be. It'll be what people bring to the table, what, what important record, what did they see as important records of the experience that they had? And so um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what what comes forward there. Kelly, the Million Dollar Hoods Research Project. I know this is a community-driven initiative you've been working on since, I think, 2016. Tell us about what it is and its connection to this new archive. Million Dollar Hoods has a university-based but community-driven research project that maps the fiscal and human cost of mass incarceration in Los Angeles. We do that by acquiring police and jail data and then calculating how much is spent per neighborhood on locking up local residents. And we found that at least 30 neighborhoods here in Los Angeles, um, local authorities are spending more than $1 million per year locking up our neighbors and our residents. And so those are our million dollar hoods. And the argument that we've been making with community organizations, such as Justice LA, Youth Justice Coalition, and many others, is that we have spent far too much money on policing incarceration. And we need to draw down our investments on policing incarceration to reinvest our public dollars in education and healthcare and employment and housing all of the systems that we know build stronger, thriving communities and families. Now, one of the things that's really important about this new collaboration between Million Dollar Hoods and the UCLA Ethnic Study Centers is the following. Million Dollar Hoods has been doing our work with data. That's really arrest records and jail records. And one of the things that happens in that data is that certain populations get systematically erased from the analysis. In particular, native and indigenous populations go undercounted and unrecognized in the data. And so we haven't been able to really grasp with what are the impacts of policing incarceration on LA's extraordinarily large and diverse indigenous population. So Shannon and I had tried to do some work together on the data before, and it's this new opportunity to work more closely together 
and also to bring in more records, the carceral ephemera, the oral histories, that'll give us a much more robust understanding of the age of mass incarceration's impact upon BIPOC communities, that's Black, Indigenous, and people of colors across um, Los Angeles. And Shannon, let's talk a little bit more about the Indigenous part of this. I know Los Angeles is the home to the nation's largest urban population of American Indian people, and that UCLA has this uh, American Indian Studies Center. You're going to be doing oral histories. Tell us a little bit more about what you might find and the people you're going to be working with. We're really looking forward to this precisely for the reasons that, that, that Kelly just outlined. Our population, our communities are so often invisibilized in these processes, in these records, in the data for a variety of reasons, but um, largely because, you know, how, what... Um, one's race or ethnicity is, uh, is defined often by the officer involved. And so they don't have the cultural competency or ability to recognize Native peoples. California Native peoples, many California Native peoples have Hispanic surnames. So often they're just registered as Latino or registered as white or registered as black because Native people can look anyway. Um, so we're really looking forward to getting out in the community, recording those histories and trying to draw that history and that experience out through, through the oral histories in a way that they just can't be seen in, in the data. And we might also find clues through those interviews to ways that we can look at the data to get at where the Native folks are in those data sets. And we're also very interested in seeing, you know, any information we can get out about police interactions with Indigenous folks from Latin America who um, LAPD has had uh, cultural competency trainings from community organizations on interacting with indigenous peoples who are from Mexico or Central America. And we're very interested in, in, in seeing how those trainings worked, whether the materials shared were actually utilized, um, and if anything shifted over time in those kinds of interactions. So Kelly, the police part of this project, the archive covers, you said, starting mostly in the 80s into the 2000s. This is a notable era in the history of American incarceration. Well, you certainly know as well as I do how notable this era is um, in terms of LA history, but LA's role nationally in the rise of mass incarceration in terms of, you know, the LAPD is an innovator when it comes to police practice, when it comes to the development of SWAT teams, development of day-to-day -day drug enforcement practices. So we're really looking at the LA story, but able to look out into what this means for the, the entire nation. And the 80s in LA, just remind us. Well, the 80s in LA is a high moment of the war on drugs, of basically stop and frisk kinds of policing. It's the moment that we see our local jail population from the early 80s until the late 1990s skyrocket. And so this is the moment that policing and incarceration become primary tactics and techniques of governance in, in the city. So it's really important that we get a sense of what happened, who did what, to whom, and at what cost and what consequence. And I know us on the Million Dollar Hoods team are really eager to get into these historical records to start to develop an equation for reparations about how much has been asset stripped from um, impacted communities over the decades, uh, how much needs to be returned, what investments need to be made to make 
families and communities whole after we have survived this, um, this era. And Shannon, the LA Times said, quotes one of you saying, community members will ultimately shape what ends up in the collection. Tell us about how that will work. Well, um, we'll start for the oral histories by reaching out to community organizations and working with community organizations to um, bring folks into the project. Um, obviously, the course of those interviews will guide how we move forward in terms of future interviews. And also, as I was saying earlier, the, the kinds of materials, ephemera that they bring um, to share with us will shape what we're doing in the project. So we very much view it as, um, as being defined in collaborative dialogue with the community itself. And so um, we can't say in advance it's going to be this way. And ephemera, ephemera, what, what do you have in mind for ephemera? It's a great name, but what, what, what do you think it might be? By ephemera, we're, we're really just referring to any kind of material evidence of their experience of incarceration that people might have. And that could be photographs, it could be documents, it could be all kinds of things. It could be, you know, the paintings that they did when they were locked up. It could be, you know, documents from their attempts to reintegrate and get employed after having been incarcerated. I mean, just a whole gamut of possible material evidence of, right. of what it means to be incarcerated. Right. Kelly, you, you have called taking over this police archive reparative work. What do you mean? I mean, several things by that. Um, the first is when it comes to developing long-standing archives that will tell the tale of what happened in the past. Um, most impacted communities typically are not at the center of designing those, those archives and, and filling them up and describing them. And we can talk about all kinds of historical moments where this has been the case. Key ones, for example, are the history of enslavement. There wasn't a pause to talk to the enslaved and the formerly enslaved and say, what was your experience? What did this mean? What needs to happen moving forward to move toward justice? Um, we did not do that to a significant level at the end of the civil rights movement, the end of the age of Jim Crow. We didn't take that pause to build the archive of what had happened. And this is true for all of our communities and sort of the major epics of, um, of history that we've lived through. And so it's reparative work in the sense that we are here at UCLA going to take a pause and we're going to work with our community members, all of us, um, to get a sense of what has happened. And so it's reparative work to go back and to think through and to document and to retain um, our experiences. That's part of it. The second part is going into particular stories and finding out a little bit more about what happened within the police records as opposed to what was the police narrative that was told. And let me tell you a quick story about this. So one of the first records that we found in the LAPD archives was found by who was then a graduate student as an incoming faculty member, Mark Vestal, who's a member of our team. And that is a story of a officer involved shooting in 1978, in which the LAPD had a helicopter that was flying over Watts and saw a sedan that had its lights out. And that was enough to provoke interaction between law enforcement officers on the ground and two African-American men sitting in that, that vehicle. That interaction led to a shooting that left Alonzo Simmons terribly wounded, um, suffering for a great deal of, of pain through the rest of his life, multiple surgeries. The way that that story was told at the time to the LA Times was that Alonzo Simmons was a suspect of grand auto theft. And that because of this 
suspicion of this activity that he was engaged in, he was somehow the legitimate subject of police violence. Well, when you go into the record, you find, in fact, the LAPD's own investigation did not have a grand theft um, invest in, investigation ongoing. Rather, it was two men sitting in their car with their lights off, and that was enough to, to create suspicion. So it's reparative work in terms of bringing more knowledge, more light to the incidents that have happened um, in our own lives, individual lives and in our community life, and working through that together. So we'll be working with community members, um, with family members who have lost people to police violence and others to, to work through that archive together about what are the questions we need to ask, what needs to be retained, and in some cases, what do some people want to leave behind? What do they not want to have recorded? That is our right as well as to um, hold on to the traumas that we don't want to put out into the public. So that's a very delicate balance. Uh, and just as Shannon has discussed, we will be walking that, that path together with our community partners to make decisions, um, ethical decisions about what should be retained and how. This uh, Mellon grant to UCLA came after our summer of Black Lives Matter protests, the biggest protests in American history. Is there some connection here? It's a bit of a coincidence in the sense that we had been discussing um, a collaboration prior to the uprising, but that collaboration became even more important after the uprising. And it's certainly, I must say, reflective of the turn that um, El Elizabeth Alexander and others have taken at the Mellon Foundation to really spotlight racial justice. And so as the summer unfolded, as we began to engage in conversations with the other ethnic studies centers, this collective project came together to record the age of mass incarceration and to do it in ways that includes the voices of all BIPOC communities here in LA. Are there going to be more LAPD records added to this in the future? It seems like you've got the goal that it's, it's the use of force archive that they've done everything they, had, they could to, to uh, conceal and protect from the public. Do you look forward to adding to this police archive in the future? Well, just this morning, I read an article in the New York Times that in New York, new disciplinary police disciplinary files would be made available. That's not quite the situation here in California at the moment, but we are working with the LAPD to develop a, an agreement by which the project will get access to additional records. And the LAPD has expressed interest in transparency and making as much records, as many records available as possible. There are tens of thousands of records that are really available for us to acquire. So again, we will be working with community, uh, most impacted persons and community-based organizations to think through what will be our priorities for records that we're going to, to seek to preserve. So that's an unfolding process. I, I do suspect that we will get additional records and I look forward to working with our community partners to decide what are our top priorities. Kelly Little Hernandez and Shannon Speed on UCLA's new Archive of the Age of Mass Incarceration. Congratulations on winning this big grant and organizing this huge project. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Thanks for having us on. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics 
thinking about the left. Now it's time for our regular feature on TV in the age of the virus. And so we turn again to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the LA Weekly, the New York Times, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Glad to be here, John. Thank you. Well, today we want to talk about the new film playing now on HBO Max, Judas and the Black Messiah. It's about Fred Hampton, head of the Black Panther Party in Chicago, who was assassinated by the Chicago police in 1969, while the trial of the Chicago 7 was going on. One of the most talented and charismatic organizers of the late 60s. Uh, let me start by giving just a little historical background to the story told in the movie before we talk about how they make this into a movie. Uh, Fred Hampton started out unlike Malcolm X, who had been a criminal, and unlike Martin Luther King, who was, of course, a minister. Fred Hampton was an honors student in high school and a youth organizer for the NAACP, the, the let us call it moderate civil rights, longtime civil rights organization. He was such a good speaker and organizer uh, as a high school student he grew the chapter from seven people to 700 we are told and then as the 60s went on he became more radical as so many of us did he joined the black panthers and co-founded the illinois chapter when he was 20 and uh in by may of 1969 he had formed what he called the rainbow coalition which was a multi-racial alliance that united rival street gangs, uh, black and Puerto Rican, with the uh, working class whites and, of course, black activists fighting, they said, for self-determination for all oppressed people. In the meantime, the FBI, under the director uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who had been there since the 20s, had launched COINTELPRO, a secret and illegal program whose goal was to disrupt and undermine radical groups. And they recruited a guy named Bill O'Neill when he was a 17-year-old car thief to um, infiltrate the Panthers for the FBI. And his assignment was to get close to Fred Hampton. He became chief security officer for the local chapter and provided the FBI with the floor plan of the apartment where Fred Hampton slept. And on December 4th, 1969, the Chicago police carried out a pre-dawn raid, shot, I think, 80 bullets. Uh, into the apartment that left uh, Fred Hampton dead. He'd been shot twice in the head. And a second Panther, Mark Clark, was also killed. There was a cover-up of the circumstances um, th that Fred Hampton was killed in his bed while he slept, but the true story eventually came out. In 1982, the federal government, the city of Chicago, and Cook County agreed to pay almost $2 million to the families of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark um, and to the other survivors of the raid. And the new head of the FBI issued a public apology for the Bureau's abuse of power. That's the real history. Making this into a movie, especially a good movie, is not an easy thing. How did they do? The actor who plays Fred Hampton is British, Daniel Kaluuya. 
Uh, although you'd never know because his as in his other films, um, his mastery of uh, American accent, I don't know about the Midwest, you're from there, so I defer to you as you would never guess. Um, but the story is told as a kind of two-pronged character story because, in fact, the foreground is occupied by Bill O'Neill, who was the petty car thief who was blackmailed by an FBI agent who's wonderfully played by Jesse Plemons, who we last saw as a apparently very meek guy and uh, I'm thinking of ending things. <laughs> His task is to infiltrate the Chicago Black Panther Party, which is headed by um, the extremely charismatic and articulate, as you pointed out, and fiery um, speaker, Fred Hampton, who's also, I didn't never realize that how young he was when he was killed. I think he was 22. And we last heard about him on this show when we were reviewing um, The Trial of the Chicago 7. This is a very different kind of movie. Yes. <laughs> um, there's no zany bits in it. Um, there's a few moments of humor, but, but mostly it is a extremely tightly structured and well-made film, something of an action film, but not just. And the interesting thing about Fred Hampton is that he is interpreted here as someone who talked a great deal about revolution. And that's that's the way he galvanized his audience, but his instincts were uh, unifying and conciliatory because he tried to unify the black gangs of the area uh, and the other black political groups as well under one much more effective um, rubric and also organized free breakfasts for uh, children in the impoverished children in the area. Um, and he also got himself a very nice girlfriend who um, is played rather touchingly by Dominique Fishback, who has an extraordinary resemblance to the reporter Yamish Elsindor, who we saw a lot of during the <laughs> Trump administration. Uh, and she soon becomes pregnant. Um, he's sent to prison twice. We see him actually in prison once. <laughs> um and uh, Jesse Plemons' character uh, on orders from his bosses and also from Hoover, who's played by Martin Sheen, almost unrecognizable in, in the movie. And um, it's a tale of extraordinary corruption, brutality and open racism by the police, the FBI, and of course, by, by Hoover. This is known, in which they, um, pin, you know, try to divide and conquer, but also to wipe out uh, members of the Black Panther Party. But the more um, pathetic story is that of Bill O'Neill, who was corralled into this went along willingly enough because he had absolutely no idea, at least according to the film, what he was getting into and increasingly finds himself uh, tangled up in his obligations to the FBI. Um, the movie ends uh, with a real-life interview with O'Neill shortly before he committed suicide. 
And in that interview, he tries very, very, as you know, quite pathetically to justify and rationalize his actions. And in, in uh, to the credit of the filmmakers, they do make us understand how once this was a story of Br'er Rabbit and Tar Baby, because once he dipped his his hand into this cesspool, he couldn't get out. Um, he became the cesspool a, of being an FBI informer. Yes. Yeah, he couldn't get out of it. Um, and in fact, he, he rose to become very highly placed, as you said, within uh, the Black Panther Party and increasingly reluctant to betray um, his comrades. So this is a very complex and, and uh, in many ways sympathetic portrait. Um, everything about it is just so skillfully done. The cinematographer, cinematography is lovely. It's very urban, gritty and dark. And um, uh, the script is very complicated. It's just a really marvelously made movie altogether and can be seen on HBO Max. And we have a second film to recommend, Nomadland, starring the wonderful Frances McDormand as a working class woman who's lost her husband, lost her job, lost her house, and is living in her van. It opens on Hulu Friday, February 19th. Let's talk about Frances McDormand in Nomadland. She plays a, a widow, and she's not quite working class because she's a form, she worked in human resources um, in a gypsum mining factory in rural Nevada. She also tutored uh, English to uh, school children. And the town, not just the factory, but the, the whole town collapsed under the weight of the 2008 recession, at which point she fits out her decrepit old van as a home and takes to the road as a seasonal worker. At, we actually see her working at Amazon. I don't know how they managed to swing that. It's the real, yes, it's a real Amazon fulfillment center, which is this vast, endless space with, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of people working in it. And it's the yeah. real thing. Yes, it is the real thing. And no doubt Amazon was delighted because one bit of the script refers to the really good wages. <laughs> um, and also at the National Park um, system. And she journeys from uh, through the desert to the Pacific Northwest. Chloe Zhao, who made the movie, has lived in China and England. Um, but if you remember her recent film, The Rider, which also had exquisite uh, scenes of, of landscape, she has fallen in love with the American West in a, in a big way. And it's mm -hmm. our, uh, to our benefit that she's done so because the, 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 the severe and unforgiving landscapes of both areas um, are shown in all the glory. And um, when there isn't work for a while, she takes up with a real life community of nomads who function as a mutual aid society and also have a lot of cultural activities and they're shown how to, there's one scene where they're instructed how to get rid of their poop. Um, <laughs> and um, it's an extremely vis visceral and physical movie in which she learns how to become independent. Beautifully shot. Um, the, the landscape is not romanticized at all. It's often very forbidding and, and difficult to navigate. 
there's a lovely score by Ludovico uh, Einodi, uh, and there are several non-pro real-life nomads who I must say are extremely good. So it's, it's a fiction that's made with uh, real materials is the way I would describe it. And, and uh, there was clearly lots of improvising. It's sort of filmmaking as discovery. There's lots of handheld camera and so on, which doesn't make it any less a beautiful movie. And part of it is, is that it shows that impoverished people don't go around being miserable all day. The film has received, you know, it was received rapturously at first, and since then there's been some backlash um, to the tune of um, the romanticization of homelessness. And so I went back and watched it again to see whether I, uh, I agreed, and I, I think that that criticism is valid in a very, very narrow sense, which is that everybody in the movie is so kind and so nice and so helpful um, and so cooperative. There's not a predator in sight. And, you know, when a woman travel of her age, she must be in her 60s, I would imagine, in the movie, uh, travels alone, um, it's hard to believe that she would be that safe <laughs> uh, and that protected. But that is really the limits of it. I really confirmed my first view of the movie is just lovely um, in the sense that it confronts both sides of the desire to be free. One of the things it convinces us of is that um, people who lose their jobs or leave their jobs at an age when they might be retiring decide instead that they're going to have adventures. <laughs> and uh, the, the truly hardy ones um, find that they really like it, and she is one of them. Yeah. Because one of the things that happens in the movie is that Fern, um, Frances McDormand's character, discovers that really she's led a life in which she's not been true to her nature that she is by nature a wanderer. She's, and in fact, physically, she's always one going off by herself in the movie. She can't stand being at a lecture or uh, she just goes off by herself. And that, that uh, is her nature. There's some lovely scenes where she has no choice but to go and stay with her sister who's leading a very straight life as the wife of a, a realtor. Uh, and there um, she discovers that it's her choice to live that way. So it resists the idea of aging as a, you know, decay or just waiting to die or, or retiring to some kind of heaven, which was the movie we saw a few weeks ago, the documentary, this is the opposite. Um, she wants the adventure, she loves nature in all its forms. But the other thing that we see is that by no means all of these people are working class. One of the real life uh, nomads that she encounters used to work in, in a corporate setting and couldn't stand it. <laughs> so um, without minimizing the dangers or the, you know, the many difficult times that are due to weather or the lack of work or, or whatever, those are given full play. Um, but the affinity to nature, which uh, Chloe Zhao clearly shares, <laughs> is given is also given full play. Uh, and I, on the whole, I would say this was not romanticized. Um, that colony of communitarian nomads is real. Uh, it was founded 
uh, its founder is featured in the movies, uh, telling some wonderfully moving stories about how he got where he was and why he founded the community. And uh, I just loved it. She insists in the movie, the character Fern, that she is not homeless. Her home is her van. And there are lots of homeless people. Of course, we see them <clears throat> on the streets of our cities who are in terrible shape, who have mental illness, who are addicts, who have terrible health problems. That's not these people. These people live in their vans and work at working class jobs, seasonal jobs. Amazon is sort of like being a, a, a farm worker or something like that, where different seasons you work different crops. Well, in the Christmas season, you can work at Amazon. In the summer, you can work in the parks. Uh, so it's not just pure wandering for the scenery. It's they, they find jobs enough to support them and they have to do this because although they are too old to get regular work anymore. They don't have enough money to retire to a paradise like the one in Florida. So the critics are right. This is not about the worst level of homelessness. This is about people who live in vans and work when they can and are able to carry on a life and be part of, as you say, be part of a community. And it's it turns out it's based on a nonfiction book, which is reporting on these communities and what they're like. And in fact, some of the the quote real people who are in this are in the characters from the are in the book were discovered by the book author it was quite a celebrated book of about three or four years ago um but i i must say that you know not all of them are there because they want to be even in the movie um Frances McDormand's character, Fern, has a rather heartbreaking conversation with a young man whom she befriends, who's clearly a lost soul. And I imagine that these kinds of communities are also refugees for refugees for lost souls. So there is a, a sad underbelly here. And she doesn't really want to be there. She's forced out of her house and her city her town closed and she's she's got no place else to go so she goes on the road in her in her van so it turns out that there are there's a community and there's many good things about the life that she picks but it's not yeah. it wasn't her, her goal in life to become a van dweller not at the beginning, but by the end it is, yes. um, because she, yes. turned, she has many opportunities to, for, to be comfortable, um, yes. which I don't want to divulge, but she turns them all down. But I do think that this is also a kind of elegy for the end of the full-time job. Yeah. And yeah. uh, and this in a society which has no social safety net, uh, yeah. and that the, the nomads are to some degree um, an outcome of of that situation, which will only get worse. <laughs> Certainly, yes. you know, given the pandemic and what you know the tatters of the of our economy that remain afterwards. I, I am sure you can we see it all around us. I certainly do in Santa Monica. No man land with the wonderful Frances McDormand opens on Hulu Friday, February 19th. We have a little minute left for one more. Uh, this is a, a movie that has been open for a couple of weeks. It's called Little Fish and you can it's available for rent on Prime, Google Play, iTunes and, and Vudu. <laughs> I can never say that without 
thinking of voodoo, um, is directed by Chad Hartigan. Um, and it's a small but lovely romantic drama with an absolutely terrifying premise. Uh, it stars Jack O'Connell and Olivia Cook, both of whom are very good as a, a couple very much in love, get married and so on. Uh, and then they are confronted with a plague. Uh, so it's kind of sci-fi, but done in very realistic ways. Uh, called NIA, in which people progressively lose their memories. So this lovely little romantic drama um, that's so small in scale comes to deal rather terrifyingly with the impossibility of remaining human without shared memory, that it simply, you know, uh, degrades not only our capacity to be human, but to connect with other people, because you have no shared discourse uh, at all. So it's a terrifying little romance is the way I would describe <laughs> it. And it's, it's really done with great um, attention to detail, and it has its head very close to the ground, um, just the kind of thing that, that I love, and yet it's a horror movie. <laughs> Little Fish, VOD on Amazon, Hulu, and many other platforms. Ella Taylor is our critic for TV in the Age of the Virus. Ella, thanks for today's picks. Entirely my pleasure, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. KPFK's general manager is Aniel Zuberi Fields. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music